0: Audio. You're listening to Therapy and Theology, and I'm your host, Carly Mercure. This podcast is a space where we explore popular topics and questions related to the convergence of faith, feelings, spiritual formation, and more. My prayer is that through these conversations, We will grow in our awareness of who we are as beloved children of God, learn to acknowledge our needs and emotions with curiosity and compassion, and rediscover the purpose and power of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. As a licensed therapist and ministry leader, I want to give voice to the many questions we face while cultivating a clearer view of how our faith informs our healing journey. I don't have all the answers, but I am committed to going deeper and walking together. So, whether you've been to therapy or know exactly what you believe when it comes to theology, I want to invite you to join this journey as we fearlessly name the complexities of our present reality and press into the hope of the gospel story. So, are you ready? Let's jump into today's question and begin this journey together. Hello and welcome back to Therapy and Theology. I am so excited to be jumping into the third episode of our series called The Integrated Self, and we are seeking to better understand the connection between self-awareness and our spiritual formation. You know, the self composed of the heart, soul, mind, and strength is made in the image of God and for the purpose of knowing and being known by God. But due to the brokenness that has fractured our Intended wholeness, we have had to become disintegrated from ourselves and have learned to disconnect from our emotions and God given needs. In many ways, we have learned to lose sight of our true self as a reflection of our creator. Yet, scripture's invitation is to repair this disconnection as we bring our whole selves to God and reclaim our belovedness and belonging as his children. This is the basis for our self acceptance and for growing in our knowledge and love for God. So today, I am so excited and honored to be sharing this time with Dr. Kurt Thompson as we dive into part three of this series and look at what it means to reintegrate our soul and its complexities as an embodied resource for knowing and being known. Kurt is inspired by a deep compassion for others and informed by a Christian perspective, and he is a psychiatrist in Central Virginia who shares fresh insights and practical applications for developing more authentic relationships and fully experiencing our deepest longing to be known. Kurt is also the founder of Being Known LLC, an organization that develops resources to educate and train leaders about the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology, Christian spiritual formation, and vocational creativity. He is the author of Anatomy of the Soul, The Soul of Shame, and his most recent work, The Soul of Desire. So, Welcome, Kurt. I'm so excited to have you on the show today with me. And I would love for us to just start this conversation by hearing a little bit more about your journey into soul work, soul care, and its intersection with the sacred journey of being one.
1: Well, Carly, first of all, thanks for inviting me to be part of it. I'm never fails for me that it to be an honor. It's very humbling to be invited to be in these spaces where people are really being curious and are really trying to get after the work of what it means to the whole people to follow after the king, yeah. and um, so so thank you so much for inviting me to come. It's a pleasure to be with you. I would say that where I find myself today is uh, the result of a fair bit of curiosity and no small, probably no small, a uh, no small sense of just kind of like anxious rumination when I was a kid. Yeah, about. What does it mean for us to be human beings? I mean, even as a, as a kid, you know, what, what am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to be doing it? Not that I got great answers to that question when I was a kid, but I found myself, you know, heading off to medical school, really wondering what I was going to do. And then, as I've often told people, I don't think that I discovered or found psychiatry. I think it found me. And uh, just one of the many ways in which Jesus has been finding me in my life from the time I've been on the planet. And uh, it was something I didn't see coming. I wasn't, I wouldn't have expected it. But as it turns out, it, it has been work that, that you know, it has come. I'm, I'm at a point where I would say I don't, I can't believe that I, I get the opportunity to do the work that I do. And I don't, I don't deserve the life that I have in that regard. And so I've been, it's been work that has both been helpful because I, I get to live at this intersection of this curiosity about like, how do we as like, who are we as human beings and how do we operate? And then I think in the last 20 years, incorporating principles of what we call interpersonal neurobiology, this, this scientific, this collection of scientific disciplines that are really concerned about and have an interest in, have a stake in this exploration of how relationships and the my relationships, the brain and the body relate to one another. And especially as we think about that from the, you know, the standpoint of a Christian worldview, the standpoint of a Christian anthropology. What is it? You know, wh- how do we as believers, first of all, like, what does it mean for us to be human? And then as we come to understand the neuroscience that has been emerging over the last couple of decades, how does that inform us or shed light on what we read about in the texts of the gospel and, and have lived in the tradition of the church? And so I found it to be a great joy. And, you know, people will sometimes ask, well, how long do you think you'll do this, this kind of work, whether it's seeing patients, which I do three days a week, or it's the writing and speaking work that I do. And I've often said, I, I, at this point, I would say, I will want to do this work until I can't do it anymore. Yeah. That's because I'm, I'm just grateful to, and I, and I realized not everybody has work that about, you know, about which they would describe in the same way. So I'm, it, 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 it all feels very much like a gift. One that I didn't see coming, one that I certainly didn't deserve. But I'm grateful to have been invited into this space to do it in the time that I happen to be here on the earth.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. When when did you write Anatomy of the Soul? I know that's a just a random question, but that was your first work and it's kind of then the anchor point for a lot of the secondary and third works that you've done.
1: Yeah, Anatomy of the Soul came in two thousand and ten. I had spent about the For four to six years prior to that, really beginning to get immersed in this newly emerging field of interpersonal neurobiology and, you know, kind of thinking about how, how do we bring, how do we bring that in into the light of a Christian anthropology? And so that came in 2010.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, in this series, I, I just find it so fitting that this is the work you do, and this is what you are so gifted in. And so as we step into this third episode of the series, we're really anchoring ourselves in Mark twelve thirty, where Jesus introduces or reintroduces, I should say, the Old Testament prayer known as the Shema. And he invites the crowds into loving God with their whole selves. And so we're talking about this idea of reintegrating our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And I would love for us to begin by just diving into really defining or maybe differentiating the the term soul and and how it connects to this idea of self-understanding and knowledge and our spiritual formation. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I think, and, and here my hat is off to my friends and folks, if you know about this Bible project uh, yeah, down in so Portland. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that Tim Mackey points out is that if you look at the canon of the hebrew bible the notion of soul is and, and by the way the, the bible there's no place in the bible that defines the soul there are just certain assumptions that are made culturally and uh in the hebrew canon in the hebrew bible it, it this soul is only ever understood to be a, a you know a, a spirited body right this comes off of genesis 2 7 for the man was formed out of the dust of the earth and god breathed the breath of life and the man's nostril became a living soul So there's this notion that we are embodied and we are spirits, and then we are a soul. It's not a thing that we have; it's thing that we are. It's not until you get to the New Testament where there's been more Greek influence culturally, and the Greeks talked a lot about the soul being a thing that we have, not necessarily a thing that we are. So it's I I would suggest it's a uh, it's a less it's a less integrated way, like as opposed to and and. As opposed to the thing that I am, it's a thing that I have. Now, there are actually, you know, if, if you want to get down into the philosophical weeds about this, there are, you know, there, there are deeply committed followers of Jesus who find themselves in different camps, even nowadays. Yeah. In terms of whether or not they think we are a soul or they, in one camp and other camp think that it's the soul of something that we have. From my perspective, in terms of like the practical element, of this, I see it really for me, the question is, well, what are some things that we know might be included in this? As opposed to being able to define it, mm-hmm. how would we more commonly describe how we know it's in play when it is? I like and that. so it, 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 with, it, with that in mind is how when I'm working with people, they're like, well, what about my soul? I say, well, I don't know about your soul. I, I I'm like, I, I'm not a philosopher. I like, I can't tell you whether you are one or you have one. Right. The Bible. The Bible doesn't seem to be all that concerned about defining that. So, like I'd neither will I be. We'll leave that to the philosophers. Not that it's unimportant, but I'm just saying for now. Yeah, yeah. What I want to say is that uh, we can spend a lot of time trying to answer that question, what defining it, as a way to avoid living in it.
0: Ooh, yeah, that's good.
1: It's just a way for me to distract myself from the harder questions of the things that I do know. And what I do know is that I'm a person who senses and images and feels and thinks and acts with my body. How much of that makes up my soul? Is my soul something different? My soul is a center. Like I don't know, but I am aware of what we do know. And so much of how we often operate, so much of what the mind, with the sense of all the things, whether I'm sensing or imaging or feeling or thinking or acting with my body, so much of that, because of my trauma, because of my shame, because of my unhealed wounds, because I am so much like my first parents in Genesis chapter three, in the third page of the Bible, I am so many of those things. Uh, I act on impulsively. I act on non-consciously. They have me on autopilot. Uh, and as we say, just because I do something non-consciously, just because I'm not aware of what I'm doing, does not mean that I'm not doing it willfully. Right. I'm still doing it willfully. I'm not paying all that much attention to the fact that I'm walking across the street when I'm looking at my phone, because I'm paying attention to what's on my phone as I walk. Right. But I'm still doing it willfully, I'm still walking willfully. And this is true for a lot of what is going on. If you read the Proverbs, in, 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 Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes in particular, you would you recognize that wisdom depends upon our capacity to be as finely attuned and as finely tuned as we can be to what is happening in any given moment that we occupy. So am I attuned? Am I paying attention to what I'm sensing or imaging or feeling or thinking or doing with my body? Am I paying attention to that in another person for the purpose of being curious about how we can together, whether it's in this conversation or in this business venture or in this classroom setting or in this choir that I'm directing or the sermon that I'm preaching or the engineering that I'm directing, how do we create beauty and goodness in the world? And so live in accordance with the first two pages of the Bible. That's right. How do I become a person of greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest? How am I doing? How am I becoming living, breathing forgiveness? How am I becoming the Sermon on the Mount? All those things. If I'm willing to pay attention to slow down enough to attune to my senses and images and feelings, thoughts and behaviors, I'm then going to be in a greater position to direct them in the way that I really want them to go, that would reflect things like the Sermon on the Mount and the Treaty of the Spirit. But if I'm, I, it, I'm not going to be able to do that very well by myself, I need to be more deeply known in order for me to sort out and discover where those parts of me lie that are yet unhealed and so therefore lead me down these paths of impulsivity and autopilot-y, piloting that are directions that I don't want to go.
0: With this understanding then of the soul, if it's this embodied experience of all these other parts of us, right, then how do we or how could we? I'd love to hear your perspective on this passage where Jesus says to love the Lord with all our soul. Right. We've talked in previous episodes of this series about how like being known, knowing God and being known is understanding his love for us. So there's this connection, this invitation to be known and to love and to be loved. I mean, how might we see that in context of the
1: soul? Well, again, I, I think, as we like to say in our work, I, I only know that something is, I only, I only ultimately know that something is true, real, when I feel it in my chest. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I can study in my physics class the acceleration rate of the gravitational, uh, the acceleration rate of gravity to the earth. But that's different than me being in a free fall state. If I'm, you know, jumping out of an airplane with a parachute. Yeah. That's a, that's a different, that's a different way of knowing gravity. Love is a thing I can talk and write about all day until the cows come home. But like, if they yeah. don't sense it in my body, if I don't have the felt sense of being seen and soothed and, safe and secure, then it's just an academic exercise. And so in what ways? Again, regardless of what the part of me is—whether we call it my soul or something else—that is being loved, I have to be able to know that you know that I can sense it, that I image it, that I feel it, that I think it. That it's in my—it's not just one part of my total human experience, like my intellectual part. That's you know, I know John three sixteen, so I know God loves me. And but yet, if I don't feel it in my chest, it's not yet. Fully real to me, and so I think you know your 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 you know when you your inclination to be be aware that there is there is a part of us that there can be there can be a part of us that at any given time, if we wanted to pause and be aware that there is a part of me that is reflecting on all the other parts of me, there is a part of me as as we would say, you know, I'm angry. There is also a part of me that is aware. Of the part of me that is angry. And this is Psalm 40 when David says, I said to my soul, why art thou downcast? So we know that there is a part of David that is asking the question and there's a part of David to whom the question is being put. And in that, in that case, I mean, this is one of the more famous or well known passages in that sense. David's actually talking to his soul that is downcast. This is the way that he says it. And in and but but the part of him that is asking the question doesn't seem to be the part that's downcast. And so I think but I think it is fair to say that, we you know, we have the capacity and we, we like to say in our work that we have the human being, unlike other animals, we have eight senses. I have the five senses that we all learned about in fifth grade. The fifth. I have the sixth sense that we know that interoception my I, like I know what my the interior of my body is sensing. My GI tract, my pulmonary states, right? When I'm anxious, you know, when I'm upset, so forth. I have a seventh sense though, and this is what really begins to set us apart as human beings, and that seventh sense is my capacity to sense that I am sensing something. Yeah. And so I'm not just sensing it, I'm also able to separate myself from it and do and, and just be and be able to reflect and observe that I am sensing. I can sense that I am sensing. And that part of us that is able to sense that I am sensing, we might say, is one of our that, that might we might say, oh, that's the core part of me that is attuning to the other parts of me that have all kinds of other things going on. And with those seven senses, we then go on to say, well, we can then also sense what other people are sensing. Yeah. But be aware of it. Animals sense what you're sensing. Animals react to this all the time. It's not like it's not that we sense what other people sense. It's just that I sense what other people sense? And I am aware of it as a separate thing in and of itself. Yeah. And, and so when, when it comes to then loving God with all of these features, well, what does it mean to be loving? What, what does it mean, right? To, to love is to embody something. Love is not just this abstract. Love is not in this regard. Love is not a noun. Love is an adverb. As my friend and professor of philosophy, Jeff Dudiak would say that love, if we only do things lovingly, the sense of, to love God is to love other people with kindness and gentleness and all the fruit of the spirit that we want to act upon. I mean, these are the the ways that we are in our sensing and imaging, feeling and thinking and embodied activity, treating people in a way that would reflect the Sermon on the Mount, treating people in a way that would reflect the fruit of the spirit that we read about in in Galatians 5.
0: Yes. I think that ties in so beautifully with this idea of when we don't know ourselves, like when we have a lack of self-awareness, then it gets really difficult to experience this. As as you've been saying, like I, I can think of clients of even my my own that will say, like I just I don't feel that or I don't experience it, and we we trace it back to this idea of them maybe not being embodied uh, or yeah. being tuned to their own their own self or their own experiences. And so, in the work that you do, I I imagine you do see similar barriers to maybe people's disintegration, right? And or that leads them to this disintegration of spirituality and self-awareness. Without just for our listeners is like if someone's listening and thinking, gosh, I don't even know where to start. Like what are some really clear barriers that people can be kind of connecting with?
1: Well, in some respects, it's and though at one level, it might feel like this is really complicated and complex, so forth. And at, at, at another level. We might say, and and this I think is actually hopeful for us, it because it it is pretty straightforward in terms of what we can begin to do about it. In some respects, we would say that you know, as we like to say, every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her, looking for someone, looking for him. We're we're all doing, and, and this never stops. Like I'm, we're going to go to our graves in our 80s looking for someone, looking for us. And what we are longing for, what we are looking for is this experience of being seen and soothed and safe and secure. I I long to be loved. But that experience of being loved is imperfect at best. And we and many of us have had all kinds of experiences from the time that we come into the world in which not only have we not experienced that, but we've experienced just the opposite. We've experienced trauma. We've experienced being mistreated. We've experienced neglect. We've experienced a lot of things. Yeah. That. Give us the remembered sense that interpersonal and intimate interpersonal reactions and, inter- and relationships are dangerous. Yeah. And if I have interactions with people, especially in the homes in which I grew up or relationships with my, you know, with my parents, with my siblings, with my friends, in which I have experienced wounding, I've experienced some kind of wound of some form that is not repaired, a rupture that is not repaired. Then my brain is going to remember that intimacy is a threat. Um. And I don't like that feeling. I don't like the sense of feeling hurt or feeling sad or feeling angry. Oh, these are not things I like. I wake up and think to myself, gosh, I hope I can be more sad by the end of the day. <laughs> I hope that's what I get to be. Like that's all we do. Yeah. Yeah, that's all we, we want to do. Yeah. And so what that then means is that this feeling that I have will be something I'm going to have to regulate. I'm going to have to find a way to regulate this. And we know that the most effective way for me to regulate affect or my emotional states is through co-regulation. If I have another, like little children need their parents to help them regulate all the stuff that's just breaking loose in that little head of theirs. And if I don't have that, then as a child, I have to learn somehow how to regulate that in some way, shape, or form. And we do that across a range of Different ways. And sometimes I myself am just like, I regulate it by being dysregulated. I regulate it by saying whatever I want, feel think, sound like I'm just pretty impulsive. Oh, I'm, I'm just out there. Sure. Sometimes I regulate it by clamping down on it, by working really hard to not pay attention to it because it feels too uncomfortable. And we become what we practiced. Yeah. It's just the way it is. It's very, it's, it's very simple. We become what we practice. And if I practice working really hard not to pay attention to my anger or to my sadness, to my grief, I will not be aware of it. Now, it doesn't mean that my body is unaware of it. It doesn't mean that that I'm not housing it in some other way, shape, or form in my mind. It's just that the conscious part of me that is paying attention to driving my car, to getting my Starbucks, to you know preparing a meal... Thinking about the accounting work I have to do, paying my taxes. That part of my brain is doing all those things, but it's working really hard at the same time, keeping all these things underneath. And the thing is, like, like anything else, your brain, my brain, our minds will contain and hold all these things up to a certain point until it is no longer going to do that. And then that's when they find themselves in your office being depressed or anxious or with an eating Disorder challenge or too, drinking too much or all the things that we do as human beings, because at that point, my brain has, is, is no longer able to keep doing on its own what it's been trying to do. And so steps for us in this regard is first of all, really to be, I would say, you know, when we find ourselves in situations in which we are in distress, the first, the first item of business is, and it, this is very hard for us. But the first item of business is for us to be curious and not condemning. Yeah. The more common question that we ask ourselves is what's wrong with me? And I think the better question to ask. And so that's a question of condemnation. What's wrong with me? The question of curiosity is what happened to me? What's, what's happening? What's the experience? What is happening to me? What, what happened to me? What is like, what, 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 what have been the event that have taken place such that I find myself in this space and we want to be genuinely curious about this so when jesus asks when he you know he stops the crowd in mark five when he gets out of the boat he's going to the priest's house and the woman with the bleeding dyscrasia you know she has a plan and it's kind of like we're gonna we're gonna do kind of like like covert ops healing (laughs) like we're commando i'm gonna get in touch the garment and get out nobody's gonna know yeah he stops and like this was not part of her plan like because she thought that not only her primary but her only problem was her bleeding yeah what she doesn't recognize is that her bleeding is just the tip of the iceberg it just represents everything else that's downstream to this that has been condemning of her over the course of her life for 12 years every day she gets up and in some way shape or form she's getting the message uh you're not worth jack in this family in this town in this community and jesus says who touched me who touched me I'm like what are you gonna do you like what, what she like she's now she move and he's being curious now it's possible that with all of her shame that she can only hear his question is one of condemnation he assumes that he's asking because it's kind of like you know who touched me how dare you like yeah like take my power away from me without asking getting a signed release no he's it's a genuine question which is a reflection of genesis 3 when god comes calling In Genesis three, he says, "Where are you?" He's not. He's. This is not a cover for him saying, "Where are you?" Because I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Right? It's 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 a real question. And so, uh, being curious rather than condemning is, I think, a really helpful posture for us to hold. It's pretty. It's pretty simple and really hard to do.
0: Yes, yes, very hard to do. I think it goes back to that that story of like the bleeding woman's just experience throughout all life was. Rejection and was the, the response to those around her, right? Was probably not good. Um, and so I think that, that we experience those things too. I mean, so many, I worked for through attachment based work a lot of the time. And the, the largest question that I, I tend to ask clients is like, let's, let's be curious about that. Like there's a reason why you don't want to speak to your parents. There's a reason why you don't want to go back to XYZ and that reason is important. And if we can understand that, I think it can change the way we view ourselves and maybe even respond to the hurt around us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I think that many who are probably listening today have probably already read some of your books or are listening to your podcast. And if you're not, please go and check out Kurt's books and his podcast. I listen to your podcast a lot and I love it. It makes me laugh. You and Pepper (laughs) agree. What would you say in addition to this kind of posture that you already have mentioned when we're stepping into this this journey, I would say, of of reintegrating, of becoming attuned, of being curious to know ourselves so that we may know God, what would you say would be maybe a first step to integration in addition to just the curiosity, whether that be getting into community or therapy or what are just some of your thoughts? And then we'll end with maybe a quick application of that.
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the signature elements of this notion of integration that we talk about in interpersonal neurobiology is that the integration that i long for for my own mind i when when we when we mean integration we're we're really talking about what jesus is referring to when he says therefore be whole or be perfect even as your father in heaven is also whole or perfect And, and in this way he's not talking only about being perfect in behavior never make any mistakes but be pure and perfect in your intention, in your movement, in your direction, in where you are, you know, where you are turning your gaze, be perfectly committed to that. Yeah, you, yeah, you will make mistakes. But even when you make mistakes, I'm going to continue to acknowledge I made a mistake. I'm going to reboot turn my attention back to that. That whole process of being whole Uh, includes my loving God with all of who I am. So bringing together all of these different parts of me is an important part of that. But that integration process that is happening within me can only happen to the degree that it is also happening between me and other people. Yes, yeah. It requires my being known by others, not because I just need an extra body to do something for me, but because we are doing this work together and so one of the things i would invite others to do is to consider like who is one person who are two people that you can begin to share your story with that you can begin to name some things about your story in which you want to be loved which you want to be seen and sued and safe and secure who's one person with whom you can do this and of course this this can feel daunting this can feel overwhelming this can feel vulnerable to which we would say yeah yeah it does that's the, that's the one, right, yeah. It does, and you're not going to hear from me. Yeah, well, that's just the way it is. So, like, like, suck it up and get after it. Like, <laughs> you, if you're going to be serious, then just do the work. No, what you would hear from me is, yeah, it is hard, uh, but it's not hard because you're stupid or weak or you know a coward. I mean, it's hard because it is the nature of the work. There is nothing more challenging in the world than becoming a professional human being. Yes. It it you know you think like
0: <laughs> I love
1: that if I were gonna like you know if I if I were gonna like fly a seven if I were gonna pilot a seven thirty seven I could just say like you know I've seen a plane I've seen a plane fly I've I've flown on a plane I've even looked in the cockpit of a plane I think I'll try that I think I'll, I think I'll I think I'll no no like no no this is not how you do that you you would spend hours and hours and hours and hours like, you know, you, you, you sit in the cockpit of a Piper cup, like right? yeah. You would do all kinds of before you would get into a 737, compile a 737. Yeah. And our lives are far more important than a 737. Wow. But we tend to approach them as if we could just like, after having flown on a plane, just go up to the cockpit and fly the thing. Yeah. And so I, I tell people to the degree that we are willing. Uh, this work of becoming a professional human being is the most important and most difficult work you will ever do in your life. Because even if I'm going to be a pilot, I don't have to pilot all the time. Right. Right. I get, I get a vacation from my job. I don't get a vacation from being me. (laughs) (laughs) There are many times when I wish I could have a vacation from me. Mm -hmm. I, God has not yet seen fit to help me figure out how to do that. Right. And so it's, it's crucially important. That uh, we know that this is hard work, uh, and that we be regularly reminded and affirmed and 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 validated that yeah, this is hard, and we are going to continue to do this. But it's not just work that I am going to do. I can't do it by myself. This is why, you know, for the last two and a half decades, you know, every Tuesday morning, well, for the most part, every Tuesday morning, I've got men that I'm with for confession and prayer, and we have a my wife and I are part of a covenant group that's been together for over thirty years. That, that are doing the same thing in which we are being deeply known by others because it's in that space as I'm deeply known that Jesus has access to me, yeah. In ways that he otherwise doesn't really have.
0: So good. It is such hard work and such meaningful work on both ends of that of that. The therapist and as the th- person in therapy, I I just align with both sides of just how secret it is to be known. Yeah. Numb. Yeah. Or- Kurt, thank you so much for being here today. I, I would love to just offer maybe a simple practice that if we had a minute to do that, if you have anything that yeah. listeners could just take some time, even in this episode, if, if they need to come back to this part of the episode, just to maybe do some reflection or something that you would encourage people to start with as they step into this story work and being known practice. Right.
1: Well, there, I think there are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of practices that are pretty simple. They both involve having a journal, having involved, involves writing. Sure. Because we know that just as a brain exercise, if I write things on paper, my mind is aware that they feel more permanent because they're not just floating around in my head. I'm going to take my thoughts and I'm going to make them part of the material world. And they will, we will sense and feel them being more real more weighty, if you will. And so there's two exercises, three, three exercises, I think that can begin to uh, put us on a path. A one, it's not complicated, but it does take some time. And that is, it it is just, uh, writing out your story, just autobiographically, you know, so write out your autobiography and that you don't, it doesn't have to be, you know, like 500 pages. Right. Right. And, and the way I, the way I invite people to do this is plan for about 30 to 45 minutes. And write what you can remember, beginning it with your earliest memory and write, first of all, about your first decade and write for about 30 to 45 minutes, paying a lot of attention to what you remember as being important in terms of relationships. Wow. So not just like and and, and write about who are the important relationships in your life, you remember. So it's not just like, well, this is where I went to school and this is where we lived and so forth. But like, what was my relationship like with the people that were really in my life a lot in the first decade? And then do the second, for the, for the second decade. And when you're done over 30 to 40 minutes, you don't, you don't, again, you don't have to be exhausted because what you're doing is you're just entering into a practice of becoming more reflective. Not that. You're just allowing your brain to wake up to your story. So do that for each decade. A part of that then could be like finding someone that you trust and then considering, this is where things get tricky even, considering saying like, hey, could I read this to you? And I want to like allow you to ask me any questions that you want about certain things. This can feel very vulnerable, so difficult, but it is a way for us to begin to pay attention yeah. to the way our life really is as we tell it. Yeah. Another exercise that is uh, pretty simple and straightforward. We have this acronym that we use. It's SIFT the acronym S I F T B for what we sense, image, feel, think, and how we behave with our bodies. And I invite people, you know, take, Thirty seconds, two or three times a day, uh, in a journal. of write. What am I sensing? Literally. Well, like what do I sense in my body? What are, what are the images that are floating around in my mind? What are the things that I'm feeling? What are the emotions that are coming and going? What am I thinking? What are the thoughts about? And what do I want to do in my body? Or what do I what, are, what do I feel compelled to do? I feel tired. I feel I feel like I want to run. I feel like I'm I want to just lay down on the couch. All the things. Again, mostly not, not just because oh, this is going to somehow reveal all the deep secrets I want to know about myself. It's more a matter of beginning to practice, paying attention to what my experience actually is, such that I'm not just walking around on autopilot. And then the third thing I think I would say, and especially for those folks for whom who are listening who find themselves in places that feel difficult, you're familiar with all these practices. And and that that would be a, a simple gratitude exercise. Yeah. At the end of the day, in that same journal list, three concrete things that you've experienced in the course of that day that you would say, gosh, I'm really grateful. I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the lunch that I had today. I'm, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for Nora who works in a cafeteria at the place where I work. I'm just really grateful for her because she was very kind to me today in the lunch line. Because then once we start to keep track of these things that we're grateful for day after day after day, then we move to the next step in which we say, tomorrow, I'd like you to go and tell Nora yeah, what you're grateful for and why you're grateful for her in that regard. And so it's not just a matter of like noticing what I'm grateful for, but it also means practicing being grateful with the person who's responsible for what has been provided for you. Yeah. It goes a long way. In enabling my mind to be in the present moment, drawing my attention to things that are good and beautiful in my life, taking my attention away from things that I'm afraid of or things I'm ashamed of, but also connecting me to other people, especially as I am doing the work of especially explicitly expressing that gratitude to them in real time and space. Oh,
0: so good. These are all beautiful. And I hope that those listening, I hope you try them out and let us know what you think and how they've, how they've helped you. Kurt, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a blessing and a gift. And I just, I pray for your continued ministry as you keep the work that you're doing.
1: Carly, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. And again, to reiterate, following Jesus is hard to do. And at the same time, we are much, we are in a much better place to do it if we're not doing it by ourselves. So really grateful for your podcast and for your listeners having the advantage of knowing that uh, they're not by themselves in this process.
0: That's right. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Therapy and Theology. If you have a question or topic you would like discussed on a future episode, please feel free to email me or drop it in the comments. Also, don't forget to subscribe to have each week's episode instantly downloaded to your podcasts and see the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode. To access more content, join my monthly email list. For the latest updates and info, visit my website at carlymarcluyer.com.
1: There's nothing in this world that He cannot do if we truly allow His love.
0: We can do nothing without Him. Anything that we do apart from Him is not something that's permanent.
1: All need is grace. That's everybody. We are all broken people on our way to a place that we believe is, is waiting on us in heaven. You can find more of Bridges with Monica Schmelter at lifeaudio.com.
0: In Christ, we are all one family.